You're listening to the Meeting Midway Podcast, a podcast of Midway United Methodist Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, featuring Pastor Jenny Andoni and Pastor Brad Biggerstaff. Today is a special episode where we present a recording of our Discovering Midway class. And now, let's meet Midway. Welcome to part two of the Discover Midway class. Part two today, we'll talk about theology and doctrine of the United Methodist Church. I'm really excited that we've gathered around these tables here. As I kind of mentioned to a couple of people earlier, I think one of the the cool things about Methodist theology, about Wesleyan theology, we learned last week that we come from uh, the thoughts and the theologies that, that, that John Wesley formed I think one of the cool features of our theology is it is very conversational. It is very much about the people uh, working together and tasking and, and going piece by piece through what we believe. Um, today, you've got three handouts, uh, which we'll talk about, but we'll also kind of talk about the main features of our theology found within our book of discipline, which just simply is our kind of manual of what we believe. Um, and then we'll also talk about uh, the way of salvation, which is Wesley's, one of Wesley's core values, which is one of your handouts. Um, we'll kind of talk about Methodist structure very briefly, just so you have an idea of it. And feel free to ask any questions on that, as well as we'll be talking about the church calendar uh, and how that is an important part of how we, we live and breathe as Methodists. Uh, but today, as we start, I first wanted to quite simply start out uh, with explaining what theology is. Uh, so theology breaks out into two kind of roots, uh, theo and ology. So we have the study of uh, from ology, and then we have theo, um, which is the Greek word for God. And so we quite simply have in theology the study of God. Um, our doctrines are matters by which the church gather together, work through theology, and then make statements of faith. Um, they're, they're, they're statements in which the church has you know, worked through different thoughts, and they've said, this is where we're at. This is what we believe. And a lot of times that comes from individuals like John and Charles Wesley, uh, comes from individuals like John Calvin. Uh, but a lot of times, like with uh, we learned last week with uh, the creeds and matters like that, it was uh, large groups of people gathering together and establishing these doctrines. And sometimes out of it, we also have what's called dogma. Uh, and dogma, which uh, we kind of don't really speak too often about in the Methodist Church, is the belief that there is a, a theology, there's a, uh, a mandated by God, a statement of faith. Um, that would be dogma, not something created by man, but something created by God. Uh, so those are kind of the, the entry-level terms that I think help in our looking at doctrine and theology. Um, but I have some books here that I just wanted to like make you aware of to, so you could see kind of the breadth of, of a discussion of theology. Because theology is this grand study of God, which encompasses so much. And as you'll see in these books, you can really start to dive uh, into the nitty-gritty. Uh, first off, uh, in biblical theology... Uh, through exegesis, through, the, through the, the, ex, the explicit study and the breaking apart of God's word, we have things like Old Testament theology and New Testament theology uh, branch out. Uh, this is the two volumes of Old Testament theology uh, by Von Rod, uh, which this is like the standard for Old Testament theology. Very dense, hard to read, but I wanted to show it to you all. Uh, this is a Old Testament theology book as well from Terence Fretheim, who's um, one of the more recent Old Testament scholars. Tremendous, tremendous book where he gives a very different perspective on certain theologies and certain aspects you get out of Old Testament. Uh, this is Frank Montera's New Testament theology. Again, kind of a breaking down of the theology of God found in the scriptures. And then you can kind of go into interesting directions. We have systematic theologies. Uh, where we have here, this is Robert Jensen's The Densest Book I Have Ever Read. Uh, he put, so this guy, Carl Barth, wrote 26 of these books, I think it was. I think there's 26, I don't want to misquote. Um, tons and tons of these, though. Carl Barth, like if I had all of the books, it would fill up this whole table of Carl Barth's systematic theology. Robert Jensen decided to put all of that into two books. So The Densest, densest Books I've Ever Read. 
Um, but systematic theology is really looking at and breaking down kind of these core systematic structures of thought of you know, our earliest teachings. So the doctrine of the Trinity, that would be something found in systematic theology where you're going you're gonna to look at all of these different scholars and all these different uh, pastors and all these different monks, uh, their view on the Trinity, uh, our view on Christ, Christology, the study of Christ. Again, same thing. Uh, you'll find those in systematic theology. Um, a really recent book, but one I really loved, you start to get in some books really specific in theology, uh, John Hick, Evil and the Love of God. Um, and this is another great one, really probably the one I would recommend most to you all, is The Theology of Love by Mildred Bangs Winecoop. Um, these are really like, she's just talking about the theology of love, the whole book. Um, and you get some really, really specific and really, really beautiful concepts that come out of it. Um, and then, you know, we have liturgical theology, why we have Holy Communion every week and uh, what that looks like in different faith structures and things like that. So there's different sets and different forms of theology. And for the sake of this class, I show you all of this to kind of say, one of the beauties of United Methodist doctrine, of United Methodist theology, is that there is a breadth, uh, and all of these books are on the table always, and they're all to be studied, they're all to be valued, and they're all to be learned from. At the end of the day, we might not always agree with every aspect of one's theology, uh, whether that be from a denomination, whether that be from an individual person, or just church history in general. But they're all there and they're all to be valued as a part of the conversation like we will soon be in conversation around this table. To start, I'm gonna kind of hit on some just general Wesleyan Methodist beliefs. That these are uh, first kind of beliefs that we share with the Christian church as a whole. Uh, that you could go into any denomination in this area, any uh, non-denominational church, and we're largely going to pretty much agree on these matters. And then I'm going to talk to you about some more specific uh, Wesleyan theologies uh, that, that you'll, you'll find distinctive here. Um, first of all, the, the theologies that we kind of share with Christians of every heritage, every age, and every nation. Uh, first, that we are created to live in covenant with God. Uh, going back to the Old Testament covenants, understanding that we are created uh, in the image of God. We are created in this relationship with God. Number two, uh, God's love comes alive uh, in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, most generally, any Christian will recognize this moment of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit falls uh, amongst the people, uh, that the Holy Spirit is something that dwells within us, uh, that calls us and, and, and draws us to Christ, draws us to Christ's love and grace, um, and, and is, is impactful within each of our lives. Um, also, we are part of Christ's universal church, even though most denominations will agree on differences. At the end of the day, we're part of the same universal capital C church. We're all, all together in it in belief in Christ and in belief of Christ's love. Uh, number four, we believe that the reign of God is both present and a future reality. Um, just about any Christian will agree on uh, this matter um, It'll look a little different for how people especially talk about the future. Um, but I think generally speaking, you can say that we believe that the reign of God is both a present and future reality. Um, number five, we believe that the Holy Scriptures contain everything necessary for salvation. Um, pretty much any Christian is going to, to believe that the Bible is a point in which you can go and dive into these scriptures and learn about Christ, learn about these different stories, all of which will guide your life, guide your, uh, your walk with Christ in a way that leads to salvation. Now, we can go ahead and talk about uh, this, a, a big difference where Methodists kind of uh, splinter off from other denominations is the question of inerrancy, fancy, fancy term for um, whether or not we believe that the Bible is without error or if the Bible has kind of some fallibility in terms of um, hum humanity creating it and writing it and things like this. So uh, traditionally speaking, most Presbyterians, most Reformed, most Baptists will say that the scriptures are infallible. Uh, most Methodists uh, will articulate that the scripture um, is inerrant, it is infallible, 
uh, in matters pertaining to salvation. Uh, so they make that distinction rather than leaving kind of an open door for a literal perspective of scripture where you have some Baptists who will, or, or some Presbyterians who will look at a specific scripture and they'll say, well, the Bible says this, so this is the way it is. Uh, the Methodists open it up and say, you know, there's matters of context. There's matters of translation. There's matters of, well, you know, what manuscript does this come from? Is this from an early manuscript, a later manuscript, things over time? Things kind of, uh, there's a classic example of uh, the, the, the washing of Jesus' feet. That's one of the few stories that uh, ends up in all four Gospels. But all four Gospels tell it pretty distinctively different. Now, is that a matter of all four of them were actually talking about the same thing, even though their order placement is different, even though the woman who washed the feet was different in each story? Um, or is it just a matter of different perspectives? You know, there is some sort of fallibility. There is some sort of uh, error in terms of uh, the consistency between the four. But there is inerrancy. There is no error in what that story tells us. Uh, in the, the, the humility and the sacrifice that the woman has when she washes Jesus' feet. That tells us something about ourselves. It tells us a, 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 something about how we are to live uh, in, a, in a way that helps us live like Christ, helps us live in a way of salvation. Uh, so that's kind of, uh, you know, every, every Christian will say, you know, the, the scriptures contains everything necessary for salvation. You have some that might take a further step than we do. Uh, six, we believe that the church is one in Jesus Christ. Um, the church is a, you know, the, the community that gathers together, gathers together around Christ who came into the world, took on flesh, um, was the living word, um, who lived a life, who ultimately died to take on the sin of the world, but was resurrected to then allow us to live into that kingdom of resurrection, that kingdom of God, that we can die to ourselves, live into Christ, so that we no longer live in sin any longer. Um, these are kind of core, core beliefs that we share with uh, the church abroad. Now, interestingly, Methodists have distinctive emphases. Uh, we have things uh, that we hold prominent. And some pastors in the Methodist church can, can kind of emphasize these a little differently. There can be different perspectives within this um, in very, very minor uh, ways. Um, but nonetheless, I think this is the first place that to start in terms of looking at differences of theology. So let's grab our handout of the House of Salvation. Are you going to explain what salvation is? We're going to talk about salvation. That's why I have things here. Yeah. Something we said didn't come through clear, but later I don't want to interrupt. You. Okay. Um, yeah, no, we will. So the way of salvation, uh, which in this handout is determined as the house of salvation. This is actually a uh, United Methodist, I think it says down here, um, and maybe it doesn't. It's from a, a youth ministry kind of handout, but I think it's really helpful. It's actually the same image and the same resource that I was taught in my theology class. Uh, so John Wesley, um, in his creating of his theology, he looked at things within the church um, and he, he was influenced by, you know, Eastern thought in some ways. He was influenced by these German pietists, as we talked about last week, uh, these, these people that were all about living like Christ. And then he was influenced by the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church. This much more, you know, here's the doctrines that we have believed for centuries. And with all of that, he kind of molds over a long period of time for most of his life this kind of distinctiveness in his theology, which we call the way of salvation. Uh, within the way of salvation, the house of salvation, as your um, uh, handout puts it, uh, the first thing to note is the doctrine of provenient grace. Now, provenient's a fancy word that we don't really use anymore in common English, but simply provenient grace, all this means, and that word provenient is that this is the grace that comes before us, whether we recognize it or not. So this is the belief that from our infancy, God's grace, grace being this gift of love, this gift of abundance, 
this gift that, that overwhelms us in a way in which we don't deserve. Um, this grace is given to us from infancy. Um, in the Methodist Church, when we have infant baptism, for example, how this plays out is we recognize that infant baptism is a means of pervenient grace. Uh, there is justifying grace, which we'll talk about in a second, within that moment as well. But for sure, it is this God's grace is already working um, in this individual. Uh, this also plays out very distinctively in how we view missions and how we view uh, working within our community. You'll have... Uh, denominations that don't have a doctrine of provenient grace, it is their belief that, you know, we are to take the gospel to the world, we're to take it to them. Uh, they don't have it already. Uh, I'm bringing the scriptures, I'm bringing the story of Jesus so that you can become saved, um, even though you, you, you don't have this yet necessarily. That's kind of the mindset in a lot of ways. Uh, within the Methodist Church, the mindset literally is the grace of God is already active everywhere, before we even get there. So our missional mindset's shifted and that when we go to a place, we're going and already participating in the grace that's already there, which is an amazing mindset and an amazing thing. It is the genuine belief that God's already there and mission is us going into or participating with God already being there, which is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, the, the second part of the way of salvation or I, I guess I should say, the, this provenient grace is an important mindset to start with because it is genuinely the belief that God's grace works in everyone. Um, God's grace is going to touch every person that is born into this world. Um, and then we reach this kind of second part, which is justifying grace. We, you know, other denominations have called this like the sinner's prayer, the, the moment where you knew Jesus came into your heart, um, your baptism moment for some, some places. In the Methodist Church, we, we recognize that this kind of justifying moment where, where salvation uh, becomes a reality, where you know that you have Jesus within you, that you uh, are, are, are saved by Jesus' blood, and that you are saved by the cross, that you live into the resurrection, um, into eternal life, this justifying moment. We recognize that this is in part within infant baptism, um, but also for those who maybe weren't baptized as infants, this is something that comes later on in life as well through, through recognition in those matters. Uh, justifying grace quite simply is that kind of recognition moment. Um, within, within New Testament, this is kind of articulated and seen within individuals being baptized. Uh, same within you know, the life of Jesus, but also post-Jesus. Um, that the baptism is kind of actually the, the image and the sacrament of experiencing and recognizing the justifying grace in one's soul. Uh, the last part of this kind of Wesleyan way of salvation is sanctifying grace. Uh, now, this one is very distinctive, like provenient grace, uh, to the Methodist theology and to the Methodist church. Because uh, there's a lot of churches that do not believe one can experience any aspect of sanctification, which is simply like the purifying, the, the Christian perfection, the, the perfecting of Christ within you. Um, this is this thing that you grow into, that you become a more perfect person in Christ over time. Um, for, for many denominations, especially denominations that will articulate a concept of once saved, always saved, that, hey, you're in the kingdom, you don't have to worry about anything else, like, hey, you're good, you'll, you'll end up in heaven with us one day. Uh, they won't have an articulation of sanctification or sanctifying grace, uh, because justifying grace within this earthly life is all that matters. Uh, and it's tough for some individuals to believe that they can become more perfect, that they can be perf uh, experiencing s uh, this kind of sanctifying grace over a period of time um, and, and, and look more like Christ every single day. And, of course, that's an up and down kind of thing. We, we, I, I wish I could, for the podcast's sake, uh, articulate this well, but it's this kind of up and down, like, like climbing a mountain, where um, you're, you're, you're reforming yourself and noticing your faults and your sins. And we call this, in the Methodist Church, it's quite popular phrase, is the growing in grace. Um, the growing in grace is this sanctifying grace. Again, this kind of order of salvation, this, this way of salvation, this house of salvation that we have here, um, is, is kind of distinctive in how it plays out. Um, also, it, it, it's important to note that 
as this kind of is a stair-stepping thing um, in justifying grace, that you are kind of experiencing the initial sanctifying grace. So justifying grace is kind of the starting launching point of this growing in grace uh, and this life of growing in grace. I like this specific handout because I think it paints uh, a beautiful picture in terms of an image that can help us understand the way of salvation. Uh, See, we have John compared pervenient grace to the porch in front of the house. When we experience pervenient grace, this grace that comes before God has invited us into the house, but we have not yet accepted the invitation. God's grace is there, uh, but I haven't yet accepted it. I'm on the porch of the house. Uh, The justifying grace, as this diagram says, is John Wesley saying that it's the the door of the house. When we respond to the provenient grace that's already in our lives, when we respond to the invitation, uh, we open that door and we enter into the house where we start to begin a process of sanctifying grace, uh, which as this is articulating, sanctifying grace is the grace that guides us when we're inside of the house from room to room as we grow and we live within the house of God. I think it's a a great handout to kind of have an image to understand uh, a general idea of, yeah, this kind of way of salvation. Uh, Now, again, there there is a, another concept, and this is, comes out in some Wesleyan theology. It's not listed here. Is well, what about death? Like, what about the kingdom of God? What would you call that? And so, some some are, would articulate that that would be the glorification, super fancy term for essentially in the finality of the fullness of the kingdom of God coming. We are no longer in sanctifying grace because we don't need it anymore. We're just simply in glory with Christ. Um, we, some scholars will articulate that those stories, especially at the end of John, after Jesus is resurrected from the dead, uh, and he like goes and he- eats fish with the disciples on the shore, he, he encounters Downing Thomas. All of these stories where he's walking in flesh and the holes are still in his hands, the hole is still in his side, uh, these are stories where we're articulating that Jesus has been glorified in its entirety and we're kind of starting to catch a glimpse of what our, uh, our, our lives in glory will look like, which is cool. Um, some will articulate that this sanctifying grace piece only comes in death as well, um, but that is not uh, what we believe as Methodists, that we believe in our justification, we begin that process of growing in grace, living into uh, the sanctifying life of Christ that just makes us gradually more perfect as we live with Christ. Yeah, before we move on, are there any questions about the way of salvation in the house of salvation? Maybe not in the house of salvation. I, when I think of grace, although grace, I said, could encompass more. There's only one way. We're not working our way into salvation. It's a gift of God. Mm-hmm. So I think just the wording is a little bit different. Does the Methodist Church, and as far as my understanding of it, it is, along with other denominations, that you are saved by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ, that there's no other way. Mm-hmm. There's only one way. Yeah, though the... And there's no fallacy. Maybe there is a story, but as the way to salvation in the Bible, there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question uh, about how we kind of recognize uh, this grace in this way or manifesting specifically in Jesus, which is exactly what we would articulate, especially this provenient grace, this justifying grace, all of it uh, only is available, only is something that we can experience because of Jesus, uh, because Jesus came into the world, took on flesh like our own, Uh, died for our sakes and was resurrected and defeated this death, uh, defeated the sin of the world so that we could live um, by God's grace, by uh, by Jesus's sacrifice. Um, It is is that that embodies the grace in which we can then live into 
being changed through justification and justifying grace, but also um, experiencing grace on the early end of things proveniently. But even also, it's what enables us to uh, become more perfect and become more like Christ. It is only that that allows us to do so. Uh, our living into the way of salvation is our living into that act so that manifests. Often, saying living into the way of salvation, I am saved. Jesus could be my savior, and I don't not to put judgment on everybody, mm -hmm. but not my Lord. And the sanctifying grace is where I think of him is that he's Lord of my life now. Mm -hmm. He's leading me to grow more in him. But my salvation is when I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins, and nothing that I could ever do mm -hmm. would ever as long, if I accept him as my Lord and Savior and believe that he died for me and it is his gift that I am going to heaven, that mm -hmm. I will have eternal life, that is one thing. And hopefully because of that, I'm so thankful that I will have sanctifying grace as a, because I love him, he loves me, but it does not have anything to do with my salvation. Whether I make him Lord of my life, hopefully I will. But some people don't. Mm -hmm. but yet they believe that Christ died for them and that they're saved through his grace and through nothing else. Mm -hmm. So I can't work my way into, into salvation. No, no, no. Salvation, justification is, is manifesting uh, within us only because of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah. Um, the sanctifying is just, it's that initial that occurs in that salvation moment. It is, there's this initial where we start to begin to, to whether we articulate it or not, where we start to live like a way where, where God is the Lord of our life, Christ is the Lord of our life, and then it is what we, uh, it is that continuation of living more like Christ. Um, quite simply, this is the best way to put it, I don't even know why I didn't say this earlier. Um, sanctification, to truly live a sanctified life. It is to follow the two greatest commandments of God, to love God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, wholeheartedly, and then to love neighbor as self. If you do those two things, you'll live a sanctified life. Um, now, to one of your points, I should say as well, um, this is a prominent thought within you know, the Baptist church, within the Presbyterian church, within this kind of reformed Calvin tradition is it is the belief that once one is saved, that they are always saved, that, uh, that the grace of God in salvation is irresistible, uh, that no matter what you do, you're still saved from that point out. Within Methodism, we do have the articulation and the belief that you can actively, through free will, resist the grace of God and make the decision uh, to refuse it and to walk away from it. And so even in being justified or even in experiencing God's grace that has come before and already been active in your life, you can, through your own free will, reject that grace uh, and resist that grace. Um, that is why I think, you know, the, for, for Wesley, this concept of sanctifying grace is so, so key and so important uh, that there is this continued growth uh, there on out. I, I, any other questions? Thank you for that. I think we have to change that because there are times in people's lives where, say, something really horrific happens and they can say to God, I hate you, I don't want to do that, but I think God understands that that's yeah. like a something to do with what's happening in your life. It's not a real rejection of God that is hard for yeah. us. I, I should say, I think, uh, to your point, I think it's really, really hard. <laughs> I think it's, you know, God's grace and love abounds in such a way uh, that is overwhelming, um, that even in the darkest of times, that even in the hardest of times, um, individuals can, can walk away, uh, but still kind of be in, in the midst of God's love and grace. Um, but for a full articulation of free will, for us to believe that God has blessed us with the will um, to choose him, uh, we also have to logically articulate the will to, at the end of the day, not choose as well. Uh, even if one has chosen before, that you could say, this isn't for me. Um, I, again, I think it's a, it's a really hard thing. And uh, I don't know if I can like, think of any practical situations where I would articulate anything like that's happened. Um, but I, you know, 
if there wasn't that ability to walk away, um, then I have concern, I have confusion um, about whether or not I'm kind of this chess piece in this game or I'm in a relationship that I can, at the end of the day, say no to. When God reveals himself, um, like through nature, that is that type of grace where he's revealing himself. Um, It says, for the heavens declare the glory of God. And that is, you know, we can... uh, we can say, okay, so the heavens look nice. I don't believe in a God. I believe that's when you can turn your back on him. Mm-hmm. Um, you can say, okay, I don't want the Holy Spirit coming into my heart. I reject what I see in this life, in this world. I reject it. I don't believe there's a God. I don't believe somebody cares for me that much. But that is, but then when you say, you know, when you do see heaven, when you do see God's hand in everything in this earth and you accept him as your savior, you believe that he died on the cross for your sins. You believe that he was raised from the dead by God and you accept him saying, God, I realize there's no other way under heaven that I can get there except by you dying and paying on the cross for my sins. I believe that when he died, I was in the future. He died for all of my sins. He knew my ups and my downs. Um, I believe once you come to know the Lord, your, your salvation is solid because he died for you. Um, but I do believe you can walk away from his will. I do believe you can walk away from that sanctifying grace of not living in him and working, you know, of mm-hmm. him living in you. But, but you can still turn your back on him and say, I'm not going to grow in the Lord. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to go to church. And even though that happens, I still believe because of his sanctified, justified grace that I'm still saved. I won't get rewards up in heaven. I um, will, you know, um, not, I, I, I just, I think I'll be very disappointed when I get to heaven if, I, if I'm not living in that sanctified grace. But um, anyway, um, I, I want to live for the Lord. I want to serve him with all my heart and I want to be sanctified. I want to be more like him each day. No, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, uh, th- that thought of um, not being able to, you know, lose one's salvation in, in justification is a more, um, it is that, you know, there's this irresistible nature of, of God's grace. Um, and, and once you achieve that salvation, you've always achieved that salvation. Um, again, according to Wesley and according to kind of this way of salvation and, and how we believe it within the Methodist church is... Um, you, one could lose their salvation, especially if one lives a life that is, is just completely absence of, of God, even after accepting Christ into their heart. Um, that, you know, there's, there's this great N.T. Wright book, the um, What Do You Do After You Believe? Um, and he asks this question um, because there's oftentimes this, you know, push to walk into someone's life and say, accept Jesus, and they do. Uh, and then they don't live a life uh, that's reflected of Jesus in any sort of way, uh, that they walk away, they don't embody love of God, they don't embody love of neighbor, uh, and they actively choose that against what they've already chosen before. Uh, I would articulate that as a concept in which one is is walking away and one is resisting the grace of God, even that justifying grace where they could lose their salvation. Now, I'm not the one making that decision at the end of the day, obviously. I think, again, it's very hard to do, and I don't know at the end of the day. Um, but, but for me to articulate this concept of, so, so I, let me say this, the, the, the real root within the concept of grace being irresistible, um, and, and this is coming into this predestination concept, uh, which is the belief that in, in, once we're saying, you know, our, in our accepting Jesus, we're living into a life, uh, that's already been destined, that's already been set up. Uh, for us. We're, we're predestined. We don't have free will. Um, this originates uh, predominantly uh, and very uh, uh, impa- impactfully with John Calvin. Uh, and this is kind of one of the core beliefs, predestination, uh, within the Reformed Church today, both the Baptist and the Presbyterians. Uh, now, you could get into different discussions about whether it's double predestination or just a, or a, a more 
Karl Barth kind of concept of predestination um, in, in neo-orthodoxy, throwing a bunch of words out there. But um, the original kind of concept that took root was the belief that all were predestined, all were going to be predestined into salvation. Uh, but with that, logically, that came with uh, the, what Calvin said was God also predestined the reprobate, which was just a fancy term for God also predestines individuals to hell. Um, that there is no choice in the matter. It's, there's people going to heaven and there's people going to hell and God chose those people. Uh, they're predestined. Uh, this is something Wesley emphatically disagrees with. Um, and out of that comes with, again, if you're saved, uh, you know, it's not a, once you're saved, it's not a predestined thing that you're for sure going to heaven uh, anymore. You can still resist that and live into your free will. Um, again, again, I think it's probably really hard. And I think even, even maybe in your final moments, you're, you're coming to grips and you're, and, and you're seeing Christ there. And, you know, the, you know, the, the Catholics talked a lot about, well, what about after death? You know, can someone be saved into purgatory? Things like this. It's, you know, Wesley doesn't really make any sort of statement, but it's, it's an important question of like, well, maybe even after death, if, if someone makes a decision, well, what if God's grace uh, goes beyond that and God's grace is impactful within that? And so um, it's a great question. It's a great point. It's something that, you know, especially within the, the Southern church and in, in which, which is really our historical roots come out of the Great Awakening, come out of revivalism, uh, where you have a lot of Baptist theology, but you have a lot of, of Wesleyan theology and roots in it as well. Uh, this is one of those challenging conversations that a lot of people have. Um, but for the sake of time, We'll, we'll slip on ahead. Uh, I wanted to, to bring you all to the next handout, the year of our Lord. Brad, I'm still not understanding salvation. Can I relate salvation? What does salvation in general mean? Yeah, so salvation, I would articulate, is, um, I, would, I, I would articulate it by this. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. So, like Christ was crucified, in my salvation, I am too, I'm dying to myself. It's that, it's that going under the waters of baptism, uh, what that represents. It's, uh, I, I am no longer living. Uh, so, the, so the root sin in all of life is the disobedience of God's will. I mean, that's the, that's the root sin at, at, at the fall. Um, so the, the dying to oneself, the dying to one's desire to live for their own will, uh, so I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Christ meets me in the burial place, in the dying to myself. Uh, the life I live in the body, I live by faith. So it's not by actions, it's not by anything else, but by the recognition that Christ's with me in this, that Christ is in my, my soul, is in my dwelling. Uh, in, in dying for myself, Christ is now with me. So I've been crucified with Christ, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me uh, and saved me. Um, 221. uh, uh, Now, if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. I always like to throw that in in there. Uh, Because again, it's it's not by your own actions or wills where you're punching a ticket. It's, It's simply dying to oneself recognizing a life with Christ who, who did that for our sakes on the cross um, and, then, and then growing within that life of salvation. It, it is the recognition of um, one that is saved is and truly embodying that and living into that love and grace is that recognition that I'm, I'm no longer in death. You might experience the pulling down of the death of the world but you are lifted up and with Christ dwelling within you, uh, that there is just newness of life, that there is love that abounds, that, that reshapes us, that uh, allows us to live completely differently. I, does that answer your question? I, I don't want to simplify it as quite simply just this ticket that's punched. Because again, I think that, that just is, that's just the sinner's prayer on the side of the street. But, but, but the life of salvation is... is but what if I don't have time? Say I'm on my deathbed. I think you can come to salvation with, you're never going to have that life in Christ. 
but that person that is there can just simply say, and not say, I don't want to make a say, but Lord, I do believe, I am sorry for my sins, mm -hmm. and I do believe that you alone died for my sins, and nothing that I can do, whether it's living a beautiful life in Christ by doing everything I'm supposed to, that's not going to give me salvation, but it's that belief that you alone died for my sins, yeah. and because of that, I now will go to heaven. I won't have that opportunity to ever live in that life. And I believe that person that... Now, I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back. Because isn't in, that, in that finality of death, in those last moments, isn't that embodiment of recognizing and looking at a whole life that came before, that in humility, in kind of really the real embodiment of humility, humiliation, that you were recognizing and you're saying that I was wrong, that I want a love and I want to live into a love, even if it is for my last fleeting breaths, is that not a living into Christian perfection, Christian love, an embodiment of sanctification? It is that initial. It's not, it's not just a justifying moment. Uh, and it's like, oh, I'm, I'm punching my ticket right here before I die. Um, but didn't the truth on the cross do that? Yeah, but the thief on the cross understood the embodiment of who was on the cross beside him. Yeah. It wasn't just the, 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 the articulation of the faith. It was, I'm living this too, but wow. Um, so yeah, let's briefly look at the year of our Lord. Um, so I just make mention of this as, as kind of a part of our, our life as Methodists is that we live within the Christian calendar. Uh, this Christian calendar dates back traditionally. A lot of denominations use it, not all, but... Uh, it dates back traditionally all the way to the Catholics, and it's just kind of a way to order our year, order our life, um, uh, where we kind of revolve around the, nece the, necessar the necessary things. Uh, within it, we have the lectionary, which we, we use quite often here, uh, which, you know, the, the thought of the lectionary is within a three-year span. If you're really going through the scriptures, you kind of hit most of the Bible um, through that. And so, uh, obviously, we have our seasons of Lent, Easter, Pentecost, Advent and Epiphany. Epiphany is kind of the weird one. Most people are like, what's Epiphany? Because uh, you hear about Lent, you hear about Easter, you hear about Christmas a lot. Um, and so uh, I, I'd love to go into more of it, but this I think is a really helpful handout for, for those. Of you, I mean, you get the colors that you're going to have hung up um, during the times uh, and, and the important specific days within the seasons as well. So I wanted to make sure you have that. Um, also, I wanted to show y'all about, you know, we're talking about distinctives of the United Methodist Church. I wanted to talk to you about, very briefly, about United Methodist Church structure. Um, so there's a fancy word um, for church structure and governance called polity, which just simply is church governance. Um, within our denomination, which is distinctly different than others, we have what's called the Episcopal model. The Episcopal model um, functions where at the head of the church, instead of it being this kind of bishop, or, or not this bishop, excuse me, instead of it being a pope like the Catholics, we have the bishops, uh, plural. And these are the individuals that are over specific regions. We are in the North Georgia Conference. Our bishop is Bishop Sue, uh, and she is the one that's in charge of um, appointments and the charge of visioning for churches for all 800 plus churches in our conference. Um, it's not like a president per se. It's not like, like Bishop Sue doesn't have the power to make some sort of executive order or things on that. She, she could change pastor, but she can't make kind of these executive orders that, uh, that we, we know. Um, but also uh, within kind of the model, another unique perspective of our church structure is itineracy. Itineracy is the moving of pastors. Uh, it is the belief that, you know, the local church is the, the group that is to remain community, remain connected. It's not the pastor that brings people together. It's the community that brings people together. And so with that, we itinerate our pastors. We don't really leave pastors at one place for an exceptional amount of time um, because it is about that local church and that local community. Sometimes there is a need for change. Um, and, and really, it, it practically beautifully plays out as well um, where 
you know, with itineracy, you have the bishop consulting with the local church to say, well, what do y'all think you need within the, the direction of your church and the life of your church? And then she can come to you and say, or he can come to you and say, here's, here's what I, I, I sense the Holy Spirit telling me about your church. Um, and, and that's practically helped women uh, achieve a lot more uh, appointments in, in larger churches. Uh, historically, churches would say, no, 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 I don't want a woman, I just want the man. Um, but then, you know, with bishops saying, hey, I think this is going to be, for this next season uh, of life, uh, this is going to be an important person for you. This has also helped persons of color, uh, persons of different ethnicities and backgrounds as well, uh, a unique feature. Um, there's also a judicial aspect of our polity. Quite simply, we have a judicial council, but the Judicial Council only rules on matters of the Book of Discipline. So when something is changed to the Book of Discipline, they look over the Book of Discipline and make sure it reflects our Constitution, which we do have a Constitution. It's very much set up a lot like American government system. Um, like this, this says, is we have an executive, a legislative, and a judicial. Uh, the legislative being kind of the local church at the very small set, the charge conference, come back at five, you could experience that. Uh, all the way up to General Conference, which we had one this past year uh, that I actually attended. Um, this legislative process, I would say, in my personal opinion, is kind of the one that, it's the one that holds the most weight. These aren't like three necessarily equal parts. It, it holds the most weight. We have the executive, which is the bishops, but again, the bishops are really making appointments and, 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 and setting visioning. Uh, and then simply we have the judicial, which is just kind of this corrective of or making sure we're, we're staying on task, making sure we're not, we're not going outside of kind of our, our constitution, which has been established for a long time. Uh, and that lastly brings us into the, um, the book of discipline and the, the aspects of it. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about this, but I want to make you aware and encourage you. Uh, if you go online, you can find a PDF version of the book of discipline for free. You can also buy a hard copy from Cokesbury if you would like as well. Um, if you need help finding it, I can help y'all find it um, at some point. I have a downloaded copy of the, the most recent discipline, the 2016 uh, within that, it's a big book. L most of that book is pretty much like procedural of like what happens when appointments occur, like how, how, how uh, someone who's in the process for ordination, how do they go about becoming ordained? And you kind of stair step up of this process. Um, that's what most of it is. But kind of after the, the first portion of it, we hit uh, a portion on, on doctrine and theology. And within that portion, I just simply want to say it breaks down into three parts. Uh, first, the history of our doctrine and our theology. Really interesting. Uh, very much worth a read. It's like, it's very easy to read, about 10 to 12 pages, uh, where you can kind of understand the development within Methodism, the history of our, our doctrine and theology. The second portion is our actual doctrines listed in order. Uh, they have remained the same back since the early Methodist church. They have not changed. That was a part of the establishment of it. It says, we're not changing the words on this. This is the way it's going to be. Important to note, though, when we decided to join with the United Brethren Church in 1968, which we talked about last year, when we had that merger, uh, there was a big discussion of, well, we have the, the United Brethren has their list of doctrines. We have our list of doctrines. You know, are we going to try and blend them together? What do we do? Uh, and so they just decided that they're going to include them both. And so they slapped them both in there. They're side by side. Uh, they are both considered our doctrine. Uh, within that as well, there's like a, a little addendum on the, the, the bottom there that kind of lists off uh, other resources of saying these are our core values of doctrine as well. Um, uh, one of those being uh, John Wesley's sermons. Uh, so it lists off some sermons of like these are our aspects of core doctrine. So uh, look at that addendum as well. But that's the middle portion. And then we get to the last section, which is called the, theolog uh, the theological task. So this kind of, I'm trying to bring it all back around to where we started. Uh, the theological task, quite simply, again, in the study of God, that we're, the theological task is the tasking of our doctrine, the tasking of, uh, of what we believe. Um, so in the theological task, we are to approach all things within a lens of the Wesleyan quadrilateral fancy name for looking through the lens of Scripture, first and foremost, but also looking through the lens of tradition. What has happened before? Where are we going? Um, um, looking through the lens of reason, so thinking through this logically and, and reasonably, 
And then lastly, looking through the lens of experience. Uh, what does our context today say? Uh, what does our life experience say about this? Um, and so the theological task, it's a really rich, 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 rich section. I would encourage you to read it. Um, the theological task is um, the, the looking through um, our, our theologies, even the ones that have, have stood the test of time. It's, it's tasking those still. It's looking at it. It's, it's looking at it in terms of the change of our context. I mean, we wouldn't change as a Methodist church. We wouldn't have included in the 50s uh, the ordination of women if it wasn't for the fact that we continued to task our theology based on scripture, based on reason, based on tradition, and based on experience. It's why we sit at a table and we have conversation about theology where we're all working on equal playing field. Yes, we have these emphases, we have these distinctive aspects, but we're all working through this together. It's not a, a list that I'm going to give you and say, memorize these, these are our doctrines, you have to say them this way. Uh, our theological task, which is coupled with our doctrines, which is coupled with our history, all those things together is the mindset and the, and the, and the way that we approach the study of God. It's a really beautiful, really unique way of looking at it compared to a lot of other denominations, uh, a lot of other faith structures in the past. I'd encourage you to spend more time looking at it, um, but just remember in looking at it and in, in seeing those different sections, in approaching the theological task, um, what we are to do as Methodists, what we are to do uh, as Christians uh, is to live like Christ, uh, to ask the necessary questions, uh, to reflect upon life in a necessary way, a diligent way, an explicit way, uh, so that like what we're doing here around a table, um, is that we all keep each other accountable, we all reflect in an accountable way, so that we can live in love, so that we can live in loving God wholeheartedly and loving neighbor as our self wholeheartedly. Uh, and in doing that, uh, I think tasking theology is the best route. Uh, it's why I'm United Methodist, to take things again to task, um, to reflect constantly, uh, to be open-minded to experiencing the changes of the world, um, the shifts of the world, but understanding our tradition, understanding our scriptures, how, how you have dialogue in that way. Um, I think it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful concept. Uh, are there any kind of final questions on that? If you have any questions about polity or you have questions on uh, that, that, that structure within the Book of Discipline. Could you, could you give a couple of, just one or two examples of <clears throat> whether these things are tasking? Uh, I know that somewhere, and I think it's in the Book of Discipline, uh, how we're to take care of the earth, our responsibilities, um, I can't think of other ones. There's probably things on marriage and sex, and those are the types of things, mm. along with a myriad of many others, aren't there? Yeah. That fall under that. So we have we have something called the social principles, which change quite often. Um, it's a great example of a theological task. It's a great example of looking at our doctrines that we have before, uh, but looking at our context of today. Uh, there's always social principles that are kind of added. There's some that are reapproved, those types of things. But it is talking about uh, exactly what you're saying of, you know, when, when new questions arrive or arise, excuse me, how do we how do we task it? Like if, if when eugenics pops up, like what do we if, if we don't have a theological task, if we're just looking at a little form answer, uh, but it's not addressing the, the complexity of the question to begin with. Uh, then what are you actually doing in theology? Well, we, in, as Methodists, we have a task uh, in which we really formulate and we really put forward uh, principles, uh, th these types of things really, really uh, with, with intention. Um, if you look at social principles and you see them added in, you can also go back uh, on, the on, on the UMC website and you can kind of look at how they've been played out. You could see how they have, like the, the, the people were taking to task the, the matter. Um, and when you get into social principles, I think there's many, many, oh, yeah. like hundreds. Yeah, there, there's, there's like a separate book for them. So. Uh, also, could you briefly tell me some difference between the College of, Dis the College of Bis Bishops and the Council of Bishops? Mm. Ooh, bringing me back to my polity class. So the Council of Bishops are all of the bishops. So uh, 
that's like every bishop around the globe, even retired bishops. That's all the bishops. Uh, the College of Bishops is like a subset of bishops that were selected for the subset of whatever is needed for that. I, I, I have to look at the discipline again because... But isn't it the council that makes the quote final decisions? No. No. No, no, no. The final, all final decisions of any sort of change within the Methodist Church is made by the General Conference and the legislative body, which are delegates, which are clergy persons that are elected, and laity that are elected equal, in equal number, in equal number. So it's both laity representative and uh, clergy representative. That is the group that at the end of the day makes decisions. The bishops really actually don't make decisions except for matters of appointment uh, and vision. Okay. Any other questions? Oh, you're fine. Yeah, it's not like a pope who's like over here and is like, I'm making the final say on this. No, no, no. It's, it's, the, it's a very American. It's very, very American. It is this, we have a legislative, we're the, the people have the voice in this. Uh, and so, so for how this kind of plays out, we have a general conference coming up this coming summer. Um, this past summer, uh, we had our annual conference. General conference occurs every four years. Annual conference within the con uh, like North Georgia conference occurs yearly. Uh, the year before general conference, the annual conference elects the people they send to general conference. Uh, each conference gets a specific amount of people depending on their size and their membership, uh, the amount of churches, uh, and then uh, in equal parts, laity and clergy are elected to be sent to general conference. So for um, this past year, we had 11 laity, 11 clergy selected to go represent the North Georgia Conference for general conference. There's also what's called jurisdictional conference. Uh, it's not listed there. Quite simply, all you really do at jurisdictional conference is you elect new bishops. Bishops kind of rotate out on quadriniums every four years. They can kind of go for two quadriniums. They can get moved around, those kinds of things. Um, but the jurisdictional conference, which is also every four years, it falls on the same summer as a uh, general conference. Um, that uh, is, is the same amount that you send to general conference, but you send to jurisdictional. That is ma handling the matters of electing bishops within your jurisdiction, which is in your region. So we are in the southeast jurisdiction. So... It's just southeastern states. Like, if, if they're in the SEC, they're, well, except for, like, Missouri. But if they're in the SEC, you're pretty much uh, in the southeastern jurisdiction. Any other questions? Yeah, that was a, that, that was a big shift, uh, really a kind of occurred within the, the 30s. Um, there was a denomination, the Methodist Protestants, that split off uh, because they wanted laity representation. They were like these bishops were making decisions on each individual local church. And so they said, we want laity representation. And kind of just as Methodism evolved, especially within America, they were like, no, we want, we want laity representation. Uh, there has been some, some bickering about that, some, some clergy, not me, not me, uh, but there's been some clergy that uh, don't think sometimes the laity are, are qualified to speak on certain matters and things like that. So, uh, but... It is interesting. It is a very unique equal parts kind of is our perspective. Any other questions? I know we're at time. If you need to slip out, you can. Yeah, so the superintendents, um, so the, each conference is going to be broken down into smaller pieces. Uh, we're within the Roswell district. Uh, our, our, our DS is Doug Thrasher. Um, the DSs are selected like the clergy uh, are selected by the bishop. The bishop creates their cabinet, uh, and all the really the DSs do is they manage the appointments within their little area. So in in the Roswell district, there's over 100 appointments, might be just under. Um, they have to be the ones because the bishop can't like lo lo uh, logistically do all 800 appointments. Uh, so she needs help uh, in making those appointments. So the DSs are really again, setting appointments uh, in consultation with the bishop. The bishop is the one at the end of the day putting the stamp down, this is where this person is going, uh, but the DSs in consultation are kind of the ones who are, are, are shifting. So I think we have 12 districts, 11, maybe 13. Um, they're all kind of working together as a cabinet with the bishop making appointments. Um, they, they don't hold the same kind of visioning power and structure uh, for, for, the, or for the, the conference as a whole as the, as the bishop would. Any other questions? 
The structure stuff is really like, unless you really love it, you really don't have to worry about it that much. <laughs> like, because uh, it can get really complicated. I'm, I'm only newly Methodist for like, like three years, and I still don't understand all the structure stuff quite yet. So, um, and I have to go through a process for ordination, which is, I would like confuse you even more of like, I still have like five more years before I could get fully ordained. So it's just a very complicated process of things. You've been listening to the Meeting Midway podcast from Midway United Methodist Church. The doors to our community are open to all, and we invite guests to join us at our services on Sunday. We have a traditional worship service at 8.30 a.m. in our historic chapel, an acoustic worship service at 9.45 a.m. in our historic chapel, and a contemporary service at 11 a.m. in our modern sanctuary. For more information, check us out online at midwayumc.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.